me for switching immediately to English. Um, my name is Esther Levenrad. I'm a publisher at Jonathan Ball Publishers. And um, since the subject of this morning's conversation is a woman who has lived between languages and in translation, hopefully it is not wildly inappropriate to be speaking to you in English. Um, today's talk is a sneak peek at Karina Sturek Brink's memoirs that are being that are coming out later in the year. Um, they will be the book will be on shelves in July, and the title is "The Fifth Mrs. Brink." And um, it is a cliche to say that people need no introduction, but I do feel that. Um, Today, that is true because in conversation with Karina, who is um, a playwright, a writer, an editor, um, we have Ingrid Winterbach, who of course is one of the giants of Afrikaans letters and South African literature. So you are not here to see me in conversation. I'm going to immediately hand over to these two women and yeah, welcome and thank you for being here. Um, thanks, Esther. I'm also going to um, to speak in English. Um, I'm sure Karina's um, Afrikaans is good enough at this point, but um, yeah, let's do the, let's do the English. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to do justice to this very moving, um, unbelievably frank memoir in in our short space of time but let's see what we can do. Karina, why did you, why did you decide that you want to, to, to write this memoir? Um, Andre died two years ago. Um, I suppose you could have waited, but I have a sense, I have a sense that there was an urgency, that um, it's almost as if you didn't allow yourself the luxury of time and distance? I'm not sure that I would have been able to write this book now or in a year's time. It would have been a completely different kind of book. Uh, and urgency there definitely was um, in the sense that um, after Andre's death for quite a long time, for a few months, I thought that I was coping, that I was somehow managing to live on through this incredible, ungraspable loss. And it seemed to me that, that um, I, was, I was managing and that I was continuing living my life um, and carrying this with me, um, the, the grief that completely and totally um, over, overcame my life. Uh, but then, a few months after Andre's death, um, I had something that one could call a breakdown. Um, and it took me quite a long time to get back together, to piece myself together. And it wasn't the only time. I, I always felt that I was falling apart and piecing myself together and falling. It was like shattering and gluing together. And And then later in the year, I thought, I always wanted to write this book. I'm sorry, for that's the later in 2015. 15, yes. Yeah. Uh, I always wanted to write this book. I've, I've, I've always said to Andre for 10 years of our relationship that one day I would write this book. Um, but I never really knew what it would contain. I knew that I wanted to honor him and what we shared in literary form. But then the urgency came because it was a way of making sense of what happened to me. The writing was a way of once again piecing myself together. And, and I think it, it was a crucial thing for me to do. It made me uh, stronger and it, it allowed me to survive in a better way. Before we move on, I want you to just explain the way the, um, the memoir is, is structured, because it seems to move 
forward and backward in time. It, it, the focus changes all the time. So you have, you have a diary, your, your, your verbatim diary entries. You have your life with, with Andre. Uh, sorry, uh, yes, you, your, your life with Andre, but also, very important, your life before Andre. Mm. So if you can just, if you can just explain the sort of, um, the way the, the memoir is, is structured, the sort of organizing principle. Um, I didn't really know how to approach it, and uh, the structure was then really developed um, uh, with the help of my editor as well. But the initial idea was to, I wanted to take a few defining moments of my life after Andre died. In the first, it, it, in, initially I wanted it the first year, but, but then something happened a year and two months afterwards, which I found was, the, was an event that I still wanted to include. So it's the first 14 months after Andre's death, that 14 months, yes, that I described these few crucial events that happened after his death. And they, I, I used them almost like a springboard in order to go back into my own past and tell the relevant stories um, that define those moments, and then to tell the story of the relationship. Um, and and my own past is limited to only to the to the elements that I thought were essential to the story of how Andre and I were together, and why we were together, and why that decade with him is probably going to be the most defining de decade of my life. This is a very, very intimate, very personal, very revealing account of your life. Um, it's the sort of things that people don't usually tell about themselves. The basic passages from your, from your diary. This is not fiction that you can hide behind. Kutsia says, all writing is autobiography and all autobiography is storytelling. To what extent has the telling of your story become fiction? Um, that is that it, by, by writing it, there has been, it has in a sense become fiction and that was a way of, of distancing yourself. Mm. I, I, I think I mentioned this in the book. Um, I feel that Nobody really can hide as well behind words as a writer. And just by structuring a narrative, you already choose what to reveal and what not to reveal. And so a lot remains unsaid. But what I wanted to convey, and it really feels, even speaking to you right now, it feels, and it has felt the whole time while I was writing, it's almost like dancing naked in public. Um, but the, the, there were two reasons for that. The one was that I reached a point, especially during the process after Andre's death, I, I reached the point in the grieving process where I thought I want, I want a clean slate. I want to be able to make a um, coherent narrative of the things that happened to me in my life and to start anew and hopefully start even better. And also to honor the 10 years that I had with Andre in a way that I wasn't able to in the first few months after he died. Um, I wanted to move forward as a better human being and to take what was so beautiful between us and live it. And so the writing was, once again, the piecing together of a coherent story that also made sense to myself, because for a very long time, I didn't understand what was happening to me. I, I, I sometimes still feel that I actually don't. It's probably too soon. 
So maybe, I don't know, maybe in 10 years' time, I will be able to tell another story that will be even more coherent and hopefully yeah. with less regret. I, I was wondering as I read this, if, if at a later point in your life, you would write it again <coughs> and that you would probably then write it differently. And, and I think I, I'm, I made a very conscious decision. Uh, you mentioned the diary entries. There are some, some very intimate diary entries in my book, but they are only diary entries almost exclusively from those 14 months after Andre's death. I did not on purpose go back to my diaries of the time during our relationship or before. I didn't want to work with the Karina of those years. I wanted to work with the Karina who remembered those years, but the way she remembered them while I was writing, but not really be confronted with the reality of that every day that really was happening as I was writing the diaries, if that makes sense. So, and, and I would like to do that. I would like to at some point go back to the diaries and read my story again and piece it together with different hindsight. And not necessarily in a memoir. I, it will probably surface in fiction. <laughs> mm. um, I'd like to focus on, on two aspects of your, your, of your early life. Um, I, think, I, think it's very, I think it's very pertinent that you had your, your background. I think it's very, very important to understand the relationship with Andre in the context of your, your early, my, very mi migratory life. Uh, I just want to read something. Uh, you say, um, as a child, I had to learn to cope with constant loss. People used around me were not dying, but I was losing them. Along with them, um, my homes, schools, and everything that mattered. I do not even want to attempt to count how many places I have lived in, how many schools I went to, how many friends I made, only to have to leave them behind. Again, between the, the ages of 10 and 14, when the most intense phase of my migratory life as a refugee was unfolding. Would, do you want to say something of that li your life as a refugee? Um. When I was 10 years old, my parents, um, we were still back then living in, in the communist Poland, so under also an, another totalitarian regime. And my parents didn't have the foresight, they did not see that there were changes coming. And they just didn't want to live, continue living in that, that kind of um, limited space. And they both had uh, exposure to the Western world through the uh, jobs that they had. They were both in, uh, involved uh, in sports actively and, and on the sort of organizing side. So they traveled widely in, in Western Europe and they just enjoyed the kind of freedom and peace that, that um, democracy brought into people's lives. And so they decided when I was 10 and when my brother was six that they wanted to leave and initially they wanted to um, seek asylum in Italy, but that wasn't possible at the time. And then illegally we managed to cross the border to Austria and uh, ended up in Treiskirchen, where until today there is a refugee camp near Vienna and there went through the entire process of applying for asylum and also applying through different organizations for, for um, immigration um, possibilities. Uh, the interesting bit that I found out many, many years later was that one of the countries on the list back then that my parents could have chosen was South Africa, but they didn't. Uh, they chose the United States. And so we went through that process of being sent from one camp to another where the state was kind of reshuffling us and not knowing really what to do with us in Austria until the immigration papers, papers came through about one and a half years later. And so this is this, these are the places that I lived in and, and it would really be difficult for me to recall them all in one go. 
and and I went to many schools. And uh, then when I was 12, almost 12, we immigrated to the States and stayed there for two and a half years. And that time was a time of, like I, like I wrote, of constant loss. Um, I didn't even understand how much I was losing um, on, a, on a daily basis. And um, I don't know, I can just thank my lucky stars that somehow my brother and I made it through and that we managed. I think the closeness of the family helped. And also I have a very good relationship, beautiful relationship with my brother. But it is something that, that all my life I've been trying to manage, that, that loss, loss, loss over and over again. And meeting Andre and coming to South Africa was my first true homecoming, where until he died for 10 years, there was no loss. But this is your home now? Yes. Yes. So I lost Andre but um, I am never, I hope I'm never going to lose this home. Um, what, what I found also very interesting about your early life was your relationship with words. And I also I want to read this quickly. Um, very, very interesting. Um, Language has come to me. There is no other way of describing it. After an initial intimidating few months of frustration, they seep into me. It is a process I can only think of as osmosis. The moment I find myself surrounded by a language, it enters through my mind's pores into my consciousness. I think, dream, and live it. When I find myself trying to learn a language on purpose, as I do French and Latin in school, I fail miserably and I get nowhere. This is very, very interesting. Can you, can you, can you elucidate that a little? During those years when we were moving, there was no other choice. I, when I was 10, I only spoke Polish. I was about to start learning Russian in school, which was compulsory back then, but I never did. So when I arrived in Austria, as did my brother, who for the first time in his life went to school in a foreign language, we were both thrown into German, and it was either swim or sink. And we somehow managed to swim very quickly. And I think it's easier for children. So at 10 within, I don't know, maybe six months, I was completely immersed in German and could cope with schoolwork and had friends and everything was as normal almost. It took me a little bit longer to understand the dialects. But then, um, before I could properly feel at home in that language, we were then moved to the States and again faced in a situation with a situation where I had no clue whatsoever apart from thank you. Um, what what people were saying um, around me. And once again, it was swim or sink. And we managed, it was almost like a, like a survival skill. It wasn't, it wasn't about learning a language. It was just, if somebody had said, I, I would have to ski in order to live in Austria, I would have probably learned that too, because I just wanted to live and be happy. And German was essential, and, 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 and English was essential in the States. And the same thing happened to me with Afrikaans, even though I do not speak it. Because I was surrounded, I still am surrounded um, by it, I understand it. I understand Afrikaans, and it's not it's not something that I learned. I never asked anybody, so how, how does this function? It just, it just, and I like reading newspapers, I like reading, uh, listening to Afrikaans radio, and I love it when people around me feel confident enough or, or sort of at, at, at peace enough to just continue their conversations in Afrikaans, knowing that I will understand, I will just not respond in Afrikaans. Uh, it's, um, so, so this is this is how it happened. And at school, when I wanted to learn languages, I just couldn't. So maybe if somebody said to me, you know, France, 
for the next two years. I would probably within six months know how to speak it, even though I don't. <laughs> very remarkable. <laughs> Survival yeah. skills. And that is why when people tell me that I'm talented with languages, I sometimes doubt that because it's not, it's not really languages. I think it's that, that skill of making whatever you have to do or doing whatever you have to do in order to leave, lead a meaningful life. And if language is part of that, then yes, let me learn that too. <laughs> I, you would never consider writing in Polish. Oh, I do. You do? Yeah, no, okay. just not for publication. Oh, really? I, I write in German and in Polish, but I don't publish in those languages. And your diary in English? In English, uh, for a very uh, specific reason. Uh, when I came to live in South Africa, I said to Andre that I don't want to have any secrets uh, with you and if you want to read my diary then I will write it in a language that you can easily understand and he never looked but I just continued writing it mm. so I wrote and, and for myself but but yeah and you two spoke English yes um, although <laughs> Uh, occasionally um, we would speak or rather Andre would speak Afrikaans to me and and you know he, he he was the real linguist and the real talent he could learn any language if he set his mind to it and uh, and so uh, German was no issue for him either um, he didn't speak Polish he <laughs> and must have picked up some Polish though he has the important words <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. You know that you wanted to be a writer, that you, that you are a writer, because often during, uh, in, in the course of the memoir you say that, I am a writer. When, when, did, you, when did you know that? Only in my early 20s, um, even though I've been writing um, since, I was, since I learned to write. Uh, so the moment I learned the skill of writing, I remember using it to express myself in the strangest way, without realizing that that is what I was doing. Uh, and mostly, so, so in the early days, um, when I was eight, nine, 13, I would just write uh, in diaries, but also poems and sketches, and, and very often for, for little performances that were never meant for, for many people, but they were, very, they were meant for my family. So, so often with my brother, we would pretend that we are doing a radio broadcast or a little play. Um, very often there was humor involved. So I wrote these little poems about uh, some of the very difficult things that were happening in our lives. Um, it has always been a, a kind of coping strategy in the family that when something, when, when, when the Sturecks were laughing, that meant that things were really going badly because we, we would always turn everything that was really, really awful to handle into jokes and that was how we communicated. So if we wanted to tell somebody mm, hurting, then we would joke about it. So I would write these little funny poems about the terrible things happening in, in my life, um, and often not even understanding that I was doing it. And then it evolved. Uh, it's, I, I started uh, writing more extensive pieces and, and things that I do understand now are stories. But I didn't, I, I just never clicked. I, I was writing before I was reading with pleasure. Which, which is also an inverted thing. I only started reading with pleasure at 13, so about six years after I was already scribbling away. And, and then in my 20s, especially when I was um, away on my exchange year in Wales, when I lived for the first time on my own in a place that I chose for myself for, for, for the first time in my life. Please, please pronounce that. Aberystwyth. <laughs> in a little seaside village uh, that sounds very easy, Aberystwyth, but when you see it spelled out, it's like yeah, yeah, it's like right. Shurek. Shurek spoken, no problem. When you see it, you think, oh, tongue breaker. So, um, and and there, I think the, the the most fundamental thing was reading about Mary Wollstonecraft. 
I started because of the courses that I was doing at university. I read about and a lot of also biographical uh, facts about Mary Wollstonecraft, and then I thought, oh, but this is what I also do. She also translated and wrote and wrote articles and thought about books and and wrote essays. And I thought, hmm, I'm actually doing this. Am I a writer? And then it hit me. But it, it was still a few years before I admitted it properly to myself. And Andre helped me a lot in the process. Um, you know, in a sense, as I was, as I was reading this, uh, the memoir, I thought that it was almost as if the ground was, was already prepared for you to fall in love with Andre. The fact that you say, First, you fell in love with South African literature, and then with the country, and then finally with André. Mm. And in him, all your loves accumulated. Mm. Uh, there is a person in the audience who is not entirely sure that it's really what it is, but there is a person in the audience who is actually responsible for me sitting here today with you. And that is a lecture that I had uh, at Salzburg. We had an exchange program with Stellenbosch at the University of Salzburg. And a lecturer from, from Stellenbosch came, Edwin Heath, who is here with us, and uh, gave a lecture, a sort of overview lecture of, on South African history and politics and literature. And within one and a half hours, totally just blew my mind. And, and I thought, wow, so this is happening on the other side of the world, and how come that I don't know anything about this? And so I then ran to the library, took out a million books and started reading and, and, and continued with the, with the lecture series and, um, and just completely and totally fell in love. Um, and then I visited South Africa for the first time. I lived the first time in South Africa in Stellenbosch. So this, mm. this was my first home. I came here for research for a few weeks, um, loved it, absolutely loved it, almost didn't come home. And then when 10 months later, I met Andre, and then after meeting him, started a correspondence that, that very soon told us that it was just not us meeting and liking a train ride together and being good in a sort of Q&A on stage because I interviewed him during his stay in Salzburg, that there was something more. Um, and, and after a few months we met again and then again and, and um, um, a few months later he said, you know, would you like and come and live with me? I said, yep, where do I sign? <laughs> Fate or coincidence? You don't have to answer that. <laughs> uh, whatever it was, thank you. <laughs> Karina, you, you married a very high-profile man. Um, I was thinking it's almost like South... Andre was almost like South African literary royalty or aristocracy. Um, he is... He, would he is possibly the one South African author that everyone has heard of about. And not only in South Africa, but of course um, overseas as well. And a very respected intellectual and a very revered writer. I, I have to just say that <clears throat> Andre, Andre's stamp of approval was the highest stamp of approval. He had this literary column um, reviews in the report. And when he reviewed my first book, and he reviewed it well, it was incredible. OK. Did you ever feel that, did you ever get the sense that your life was too much in the public domain, in the spotlight? You know, people were immensely interested in the Polish girl, the Polish bride. I was once called a Polak. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, my neighbors for a while assumed that I was an Eastern European escort that Andre picked up. 
and and they were quite shocked to uh, learn that I I had some kind of education and and other qualities that he might have been interested in. Uh, so so you never felt that you were too much in this. That the, that there were eyes on you constantly. People were very curious. Um, Yes and no. I remember how absolutely bizarre it was for the first time when I visited South Africa for a longer period of time <coughs> that the burger actually got a, photo a photographer, a paparazzi, a real paparazzi to follow us around town. And then on the third page of the burger, my claim to fame, appeared a photograph of us shopping in Long Street. And Andre opened the newspaper that morning and showed it to me, and I thought, you've got to be kidding. That is news? Like, <laughs> I was, I, I, I'm even holding a little, you know, those, those um, metal um, guitars uh, or uh, the toys that they make out of uh, cans. Um, so I'm hol I was holding that in my hand, and that, was, that, that made the newspaper. Um, well, it just shows you. Yeah, but it, so 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 in 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 that sense, that was just a shock and weird. But then, Andre also managed extremely well to have a real private life, and and that is where ninety nine percent of our life happened um, away from the limelight. So I. I don't know. Uh, I, I understand the curiosity completely. It is an unusual relationship. Um, and especially because of the age gap. It's, it's huge. Um, I could have been Andre's grandchild. But um, anybody who, I, and, and I think this is what made it so much easier, that anybody who encountered us as a couple within minutes realized that there was nothing unusual about it after all, that there were just two people being happy together. Um, so, so we were very fortunate that way. And, and also there was a lot of kindness despite the curiosity. So I never, no, I, uh, and also I try to live my life in such a way that if somebody wants to judge me without making the effort of getting to know me first, then it's their loss. It's no, nothing that I can change or want to deal with. It's, it's not part of my life. Um, but um, what I, I find uh, wonderful about what you said about the review was that for a very long time, because of Andre's status, royalty status in the literary community, whenever he praised my work, I was very skeptical. I thought, mm, no, no, not you're, you're just in love and it's fine. <laughs> you're just looking at this through your pink glasses. But then one day, I don't know, about a year into our relationship, I presented him with a story that I wanted to submit to a competition. And he read it, and I returned for my verdict, and he said, this is absolute nonsense. Go and rewrite it. I thought, oh, oh, okay, so you can actually tell me the truth about my writing. So all the other stuff you were telling me was also true. Oh, okay, then it's fine. And then I relaxed. Once I got the bad review, I relaxed. <laughs> and the wonderful thing about Andre was that he allowed me to be brutal with his own work as well which was very special. There was you no... Could, could you do that? Oh, yes. I was ruthless. Really? Mm. Um, and and it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to balance because I also write quite, quite a lot of reviews and literary criticism. And I understand that if you really want to be kind to your friends, you have to be honest with them. You are, if you think that you can help them not to fail, then you need to tell them. There is no point in telling somebody, oh, this is wonderful, when you actually think it isn't. And then they go and will get those five terrible reviews that you could have 
save them from. So, and with Andre specifically, when I felt that there was something that I could contribute and, and tell him, and, it, and the wonderful thing about him was that sometimes he said, oh, you're right, and sometimes he said, nope, I'm keeping it the way it is. And so it was a sort of give and take that was very, I, I think, mutually beneficial. Karina, uh, this uh, brings me to something, something difficult in your lives, and that was the whole Jan Rabi, Marjorie Wallace hmm. debacle. Um, I have a feeling that that you are trying to set the record straight, and three things broke Andre's spirit in the last few years of his life. First, on the professional level the fiasco surrounding the Marjorie Wallace and Yonderabi bursary he was awarded in 2009. Personally, his best friend's illness of 2010 and death in December 2012 was a major turning point. And lastly, our ongoing financial struggles, which resulted from his commitments to his family, became increasingly, increasingly impossible to deal with. Two things. I don't think that people realized that Andre had financial difficulties. Mm. I really think people didn't realize that. People had a, were under a tremendous misconception about that. People thought that Andre, with his worldwide success, was wealthy. He would have been incredibly wealthy if he hadn't been as generous as he was. And, and I don't think that he would have ever wanted to exchange the one for the other. He was extremely hardworking and he earned a lot of money. There is no doubt about that. He, his work continues earning a lot of money. But, uh, but he was also very generous and he lived his life fully. He was not one of those who was squirreling it away for that dark night that never came. Um, so, so that was a huge misconception and I think that what hurt the most was that the way the bursary was presented was that it was supposed to go to the best project. It, it wasn't about who the person behind the project was. It was, as it was written, the write-up was that it was supposed to go to the best project. And I remember when it came up, I am responsible for Andre, um, entering and and sometimes i actually did regret encouraging him because he said there is absolutely no way that the committee will give it to me and i and and i said yes to you maybe not because of all the reasons that then came up but i said your project i cannot imagine a better project than the one that you are working on surely that project deserves the that recognition and that i knew was for leader. yes and, and yes, it, it got all the recognition that, that the book can hope for. So, um, and, and I think that is what hurt. It hurt that people did not look at the project. Um, the, the criticism that ensued after he received the bursary almost killed that book because it almost stopped Andre from writing entirely. He just, he couldn't understand how people who for many years expressed so many good things about his work were suddenly so vicious about him without considering that project. So, so that, was, that was difficult. And of course, um, the financial side, obviously one doesn't go and put it up on banners, you know, I really need that money, but we really did need that money. That money saved us from losing our house. And it was, and when, when, when the call came through from the university, I will never forget that we have this ancient chair in the passage that stands opposite the phone, the, the landline phone. And, and Andre was on the phone, and I, and I saw him passing by that he was talking to somebody, and then I was passing again, I think I was carrying something from the bedroom to the kitchen. And then he put the phone down, and he sat in that chair, and he just wept. And I thought, oh God, somebody died. And then through the tears, he said, you know what? I actually got this bursary and we are going to be okay. And, and then to receive what he did under those circumstances, it was a hard blow to take. 
And obviously, he couldn't defend himself properly. No, you, you mean, yeah. no, no. And people tried, friends tried, but it wasn't enough. The other thing that I also, and I, know, I, I, I also think that nobody ever suspected, was that he was doubting his ability to write. You know, like never before in his life, you say. I don't think anybody realized that. Mm. that the great Andre Brun could ever doubt his ability. So the, the bursary was also an, an affirmation for him. Yes. And it, yeah, it meant so much on so many fronts. But of course, Andre being the writer that he was, he did deal with it in the way writers do. <laughs> um, he, he, he wrote some people into the book in the form of animals and 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 did what we always did in our family turned something that was horrific into laughter uh, and it was his way of coping and and I remember when the book did happen and especially when the long listing for the booker came through it was it was a joy and that is also why he thought he could do another one and so gold dust was in the in the face of becoming his next novel that he never finished. This memoir tells, amongst other things, about the very difficult last years of Andre's life, financial, health, health-wise, um, his knee up, his shingles. And yet, the sense that I have, to the very end, is a, is a sense of happiness, a celebratory feeling despite everything. I'm not the first person to say this, um, but anybody who had Andre in their lives will testify to this. There was something about his ability to just enjoy life, no matter what it was. And it was hardly ever really the big things. And this is how I think about it. It was the, the simplicity of his joy that was so amazing. Uh, there are also very, very dear friends in the audience, Erica and Kobus, who, you know, when, the, when they met Andre, they tried to impress him with this very lavish and incredible meal from, I don't know, recipes and probably French cookbooks. And, and Andre was very polite and ate it all and it was very nice and good. But what he really wanted was the, the chop and the voice from the braai and, you know, a, big glass of red wine and and their company and this is how he was he was he just he he celebrated almost everything everything was was joy with him and that is why experiencing life with him was so so incredibly filled with meaning because he noticed things he cared about them and 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 he had a lot to give and so, even in the, in the very difficult time, he would still be able to, like, like in the last week of his life, when we went for the, for the honorary doctorate to Belgium, during that week, he could hardly walk. Um, it was all very difficult. Movement was difficult. He was in a lot of pain. And yet, when we arrived at the little hotel where we were staying, and he saw that there was foie gras poulet on the menu, and there was a Bordeaux to go with it, and he could actually order it to his bed, he was just in heaven. That's, you know, and he, he, he for that 45 minutes of that meal, we were laughing and enjoying the food and having fun, and the pain and the struggles and everything was forgotten. And that, is the, that, that was the beauty of living with Andre, that even in the darkest hours, there was always light, always. I think this is also, this is also very uh, revelatory because, because Andre was such a um, for, forbidding presence, in a way, intellect. You know, it's also maybe that only people very close to him knew this. I mean, he was a huge sense of humor, mm. but one 
I don't think I ever lost the feeling of being intimidated. Mm. And, uh, you know, yes. And I also think this is, this is something that we often forget. Uh, people in the public eye, and Andre was no different, acquire this sort of public persona that is almost like an armor. And I think that in public, he was such a brilliant lecturer, um, intellectual, and he, had, he, he was capable of giving so much to the people that enjoyed his work and, and his presence. But it was that, that armor that he wore. The moment you got him out of that event room or out of that lecture hall, and you were actually one-on-one -on -one with Andre, and you were supposed to now do chatting, he became the shyest person on the planet. He did not know I how know, to interact with people. He was very shy. It was, it was a very yeah. yeah. Very shy. And then, you know, only two hours later at the dinner table when he could actually relax and see that you didn't want to, I don't know, somehow harm him, then he would open up and tell jokes and be relaxed and funny and be the, take that, that armor off. Uh, um, I was going to, to ask you about your um, your emotional hardship, but I think you 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 mentioned that in the beginning that that it, that you had almost like a breakdown and that the several yeah. because I one of the things that I do wish about myself and I know that the moment I start indulging in this these fantasies that that I am really on the verge of something dangerous. Is I have I have this these fantasies about being able to really fall apart, to be able to just say, I don't want to do this any longer, and and I I never have suicidal thoughts. I love life too much. So even in my at my worst, I I I still think well there is going to be a tomorrow. I just need to somehow get there. But but I have these these longings of being able to say to just I don't know pick up the phone and say to friends I'm not coping I'm not getting up and please do and and in my life in these last two years I found myself several times in these situations where these fantasies were actually then as close to reality as they got where I. I was no longer coping, and I knew that I wasn't coping, and that 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 grief really and truly broke me in the end. And and I think that I've pieced myself together again, but I think of myself as as a friend of mine, Frankie. She, I I, I will not remember the Japanese word, but there is a there is a special art form of piecing together. Um, vases where you use precious material in order to piece them together mm. so so it will be gold or something yeah. and and then and you can see that the, the fixing is part of the artwork mm. that that the cracks will always be visible mm. and this is how i think of myself that that those cracks mm. they are now forever there and 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 it's all right mm. um i think that i would now, now, in hindsight, I would have worried if I had survived this without the cracks. Mm. Then I would not be the kind of person that I thought of myself mm. as, as being. Uh, before I, uh, I give an, an opportunity to the audience, I just want to do one brief thing more. You end the book by saying, our journey continues, not my journey. Andre died, you have at least 40 years ahead of you. Two different journeys? I can only speak from the moment of now. Now it feels like those 10 years were so defining and so good that I want that journey, the our journey, to continue and I will carry that forward. I think if I if it just turned into my own journey, then I would abandon something that is too precious and too, too defining. And I don't want to be a different person. Um, I want to do, be the kind of Karina that I am today with that, with that legacy in me. 
and and I don't feel that it's in any way threatening or negative. There is nothing wrong about carrying the beauty of one's past within one. And obviously things will happen, um, things will change, who knows what the, you know, I would never ever have been able to predict this moment 10 years ago, never. So I don't know what will happen in 10 years time. But I will definitely continue taking care of Andre's literary legacy, of his memory, um, and and what we shared that it that it continues living through me. Any questions? The fact that you are the fifth wife, did you ever feel intimidated by the other four and the children once you were married and in the relationship for a couple of years? In the beginning. Definitely, because I understood how difficult it will be for the family to accept the fact, not only of a new relationship, but a unique relationship because of the age gap. I am younger than all of Andre's children. Um, so I understood, and I would have completely accepted if they had said, sorry, but this is something that we do not want to accept in our lives and you are on your own. I would have respected that. Um, and on the one hand, you would think that somebody who divorced four times has a kind of record that you, that the way you know that the odds are kind of against you. But then, because of the kind of person that Andre was, and by the time I married him, I understood what kind of person he was. I also knew that him trying over and over and over again was a way of embracing what he thought is the best of life. And that if the relationship wasn't working any, anymore, at least he had the guts to walk away from it. And sometimes I feel looking at so many people around me, that it is, it is tougher to walk away, to divorce, than to actually persist in an unhappy marriage. So many people do, and, and I also respect that. But I'm very, very pleased that Andre took another chance, and that I also took another chance, because I had one divorce behind me as well. And and we made it work. And I am richer for those 10 years by a, a way that I don't think another decade in my life will give me. If it does, bring it on. <laughs> but um, no, uh, so def I, there was the consideration in the beginning, but the moment I got to know Andre, I understood and I think that he understood that this was it. And we need to take that chance and thank God we were brave enough. Could you tell us how proud you were when you received this prize in Belgium and you made this speech in France or in French? Or am I not right? Didn't he make the speech in French? His French was impeccable. Um, and I think he, what is important to know about the, the speech in French at that stage of Andre's life was that he hardly ever spoke French otherwise. So unless he was in a French-speaking country, which happened maybe once a year or once every two years, um, or somebody phoned and he spoke on the phone, in everyday life, he had no contact with French whatsoever. And yet, when you found Andre in French, he would speak like the best of them. And he wrote it as well, beautifully. And proud, yes, I, w I was always proud of Andre, um, immensely so. And, and during that, that week and that ceremony, he was struggling so much, and he was in so much pain. But he, he also understood that 
he was being recognized for something that he believed he no longer was capable of. And to have that was incredibly special. And that ceremony, to sit in that audience where there were about a thousand people in that hall celebrating, not only him, but the others who received those doctorates, the honorary doctorates, was a gift in itself. And I am so pleased that he had that before he died. And there was one other occasion on the last evening of his life where he had another event in Brussels where for an hour he had a perfectly wonderful interview on stage with a, with a local journalist. And then there was this queue of about, I don't know, 100 people waiting there almost forever to have their book signed. And there was one woman who was waiting in the wings and she waited and waited and waited and we were looking at her and we didn't understand what she was waiting for because she didn't have any books with her. And then when everybody left, she came to Andre and he was sitting in a wheelchair. So she kneeled in front of him and took his hand and very loudly so that we all could still hear it, she said, I hope that you are proud of yourself because you have changed my life and I just want you to know that. And then she just got up and walked away. And that was the last time that Andre interacted with a reader. And isn't that a gift? So whoever that woman was, I hope that she will at some stage read me and identify herself because I would really, really like to give her a hug. Do we have time for one more? Do we have time for one more question or, or um, is it, is our time up? One, one, one more question um, over there. And um, something with regards to Flumley Snew. And um, obviously you were part of a process at the, at the well, with publishing process and at the very end. And what I'm wondering is, did Andre ever mention to you why, um, why he kept such carbon copies of such an intimate relationship with, with Ingrid Jonker? And then also why he only decided to publish it so late, late in life and well, basically after he died. Um, so yes, that's my question to you. I wrote about the entire process and maybe I can, before I, I retell the story, maybe I can refer you on LitNet. There is a quite a long essay that I wrote, a sort of personal essay that I wrote about this whole process. And, and you will find it with simply the title and my name when you Google it. Uh, but, but in short, I think that Andre simply wasn't ready until then to release the correspondence and it was him who deci decided that the publication was uh, to happen. He did that shortly before his life, uh, before his death. So it was his decision. The way the book then came about was no longer, I mean, he was not involved in the, in the, in the process as such. But the decision to release the correspondence to the public was definitely his. And I don't think that any of, our, any of us would have been able to make it for him. Uh, it probably would have remained unpublished if it hadn't been for his saying to the publisher, I'm ready for this. Um, I want to believe in a, in a very, it will sound arrogant, but, but I, I, I want it to sound as humble as I can make it. I think it is because of our relationship that he was ready to release that past. And I definitely encouraged it. Um, so I'm very pleased that he was ready to publish. Why he kept the carbon copies, we will never know. I don't have a memory of him ever discussing it. I can only say that he is not the only one who did that during the time before internet email where we all had copies of our correspondence easily accessible, a lot of people kept copies of their own letters because of the time it took for them to exchange, to be exchanged. So um, it, 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 he just, for, for simply reference reasons, 
one would have kept them. Another author that I can immediately tell you, for example, Bessie Head did the same thing. Um, so, and, and, and I personally keep copies of even handwritten letters, which I still write, um, when I write to people who are very important to me, because I know that sometimes when I address myself to people who are somehow more important than, than most in my life, that I am more honest and more myself and more revealing than I would be even in a diary. And then I want to keep that, as a writer, you want to keep records of what you, what you write. And it's personal and for simply sentimental reasons. Uh, it's, it's sometimes very nice to read that love letter again and say, oh, wasn't that wonderful? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we have to, to stop here. Karina, thank you very much. <laughs>